Be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say. For it will not be be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace to the earth, but a sword. If you want to underline a verse for today, this is it. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. So again, our theme for today is what do we do with unbelief, with people who do not believe or who intentionally refuse to believe? How do we handle people who do not believe? And it's common, it's common to encounter people who not only do not believe, but who are hostile to the gospel. We'll flesh this out in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. It says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. We are outnumbered, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. That's our quest, is to stay on the narrow road, to stay on the narrow path, to be about the business of the king, even in the face of the battles. Romans 8, 5 through 7 And I would underline verse 7 says, Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. It's very true. We see it every day. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. We see that. They're hostile to God. It's not enough. They can't just walk away. They're hostile. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. That's important. They can't. And those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. If you wonder, is it possible for a person who is outside of Christ to be good, to be the the 51%? I'm good enough to make it. 
Right? That's, that's the argument, is that my deeds, if I leave, live a, a decent enough life, a good enough life, I should make it. Jesus says, no, if you are in the realm of the flesh, if God is not your treasure, if God is not your desire, if your mind is governed by the flesh, if your mind is not governed by the Spirit, you cannot please God. And the goal, again for today, is to prevent us from getting bitter or discouraged when we encounter people who not only are unbelievers, but people who are hostile to God. It's also a warning to make sure we do not grow hard-hearted or legalistic in our faith to the point where we miss the supernatural, the wonder, the miracles that permeate our existence. A good example, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, is Noah. He preached the gospel for a hundred years and didn't get a single convert. Not one. The only people that got on the boat his family. And that's in Genesis chapter, uh, chapter 6 and 7. Think about Hosea and Gomer. We, we quoted from them a couple of weeks ago. Then we contrast that, though, with Jonah. Jonah was sent to the wicked city of Nineveh. He sent to a place riddled with unbelief, right? He didn't want to go. They slap, themselves with, with, slap each other with fishes, right? We don't want to go there. But it was worth it. It was worth it. In the end, the people turned. Right? We can't get hard-hearted. We can't get so biased that we don't do the work that God has set out in front of us. And it's easy to be discouraged. Like I said, we're, we're outnumbered. And the people that we're trying to move to unbelief, right? And it, it takes the Holy Spirit to do that. It's not us. We proclaim the word. God does the work. But our whole purpose of that is that hopefully we have some kind of Nineveh experience that's somewhere in there, and it's, those opportunities are out there. There are people that if they hear the gospel, they will turn. We just got to be obedient. The hard part is not getting discouraged. The hard part is not being bitter. The hard part is not giving up. We got to persevere. So first we want to recognize the unbeliever and then recognize the process that inevitably will happen. We talked about this briefly, usually as kind of a humorous look, but we want to talk about the reaction of the Pharisees, and we want to focus on their unbelief. So we're going to start with verses, uh, start with verses 13 through 16. It says, They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now, on the day on which Jesus had made them mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. He broke the Sabbath. There's 300 to 600 different provisions for the Sabbath, of what they had to do and what they could not do on the Sabbath. Like if you had lit a lamp, you could, not, you could not light it and you could not put it out. So if you wanted to save the oil that was in the lamp, if it was a Sabbath day, it was, you were breaking the Sabbath if you, if you took the lamp and you, tur- and you put it out. Or if you lit it so that you could see at night, that was breaking the Sabbath. You could, like if somebody was sick, like you could not heal them. You could stabilize them so they didn't die. But if you did something to make them better, that was working on the Sabbath. So if you were a doctor and somebody goes, you know, they got impaled by their plow, you could stabilize them, keep them from dying, but you couldn't heal them. You couldn't go all the way and perform the surgery to make them better. Broken bones, you couldn't set them. You could stabilize a person. It would be considered work if you were a physician to do that. So these Pharisees... And we want to see this, that the Pharisees do not conduct an honest investigation. 
They don't. One of the first rules of any investigation is to not make conclusions. And to intentionally, you have to be intentional about recognizing and removing your prejudices. Why? So that you don't miss the truth. They bring this man before them, and so this is probably after the Sabbath, because they wouldn't have broken the Sabbath. So this is probably, you know, a Sunday or a Monday. They haul this guy in. And so they haul him up there, and they're not even conducting an honest investigation. So first lesson for us is to be intentional about recognizing our inclinations, removing our biases and prejudgments. Why? So that we don't miss the truth. See, the Pharisees start with their conclusion and refuse to let go. That's the first thing they say is, this man is not from God. He doesn't follow the rules we made up about the Sabbath. They start with the conclusion. And notice, Jesus is intentionally breaking the Sabbath. He doesn't have to mix the mud and put it on the guy's eyes to heal him. Believe you me, if there was some magical formula, if there was some magical recipe where, you know, if a Christian prays and says the words and spits on the ground and mixes the mud and put it on blind people's eyes, we would do it. We'd set up a clinic. We'd form a line. If that was the way that curing blindness worked, we would do it. The magical ingredient is Christ. I've been reading through his miracles. Man, I don't see he ever does the same way twice. Sometimes he touches people. Sometimes he doesn't touch people. Sometimes people touch him. Right? People are lowered through the roof. Sometimes he just speaks. Sometimes he's not even in the same town. Sometimes he's not even in the same county. There don't seem to be any magical ingredients. The magical ingredient is Christ. So when we're praying for healing, we know what we need. We need God. That's who we need. So Jesus is doing this on purpose. When he kneels down on a Sabbath, spits and makes mud, he is intentionally breaking the Sabbath. Now, it does two things. First of all, it breaks the Sabbath. The other thing it does is it sets the man back onto the path of redemption in society. He puts the mud on, he goes to the pool, he washes, he presents himself to the priests. Two weeks later, he does the same thing. He can re-enter society. For the first time in his life, he can begin. He's an adult. His whole life he has been blind, and for the first time, he can start. The Sabbath is for the restful enjoyment of God. Restful enjoyment. And these regulations the Pharisees were lording over the people, they were a burden. Now, we don't want to get the idea wrong, because remember that God is righteous. We talked about this last week. God is holy. So remember the guy that was stoned for picking up sticks on the Sabbath? We cannot take the Sabbath lightly, and we should not take sin lightly. However, the Sabbath is for the restful enjoyment of God. So if you're spending your Sabbath days, or any day really, racked with fear and with guilt, something's wrong. And that's what Jesus is trying to point out. He's like, you've put this big burden on all of these people. They're not spending their time in the restful enjoyment of God. They're racked with fear and guilt. This is a burden they're trying to carry and they can't do it. That's what he's trying to illustrate to them. And imagine if they had, had turned. Imagine if it was something different. Imagine if they had said, ah, oh, you know, gosh, you're right. We've gotten off track here. We should remove this burden from the people. Get a good illustration of this in Matthew 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, it says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. 
So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Jesus is intentional in contrasting, in saying his yoke is easy and his burden is light. It's Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. It says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that tells us something. It says that our faith should not be a heavy load that we are carrying around. We should not be consumed by fear and guilt. That is not what Jesus intended. So if that's how you're living day to day, something is wrong. If that's your current faith experience, man, come and talk to me. Come and talk to Nathan. Grab one of the elders. It should not be that way. So the, the Pharisees, they start with their conclusion. Jesus is a sinner. He is not of God. But then it says, others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. If you were to go back to to chapter 7, we see this, that there were some folks in there that were not like the majority. Some of them believed. They had an open mind. We don't hear from them again, by the way, in the rest of the chapter. But John tells us, he takes the time to tell us that the group was divided. And we read this earlier. Jesus is divisive. He did not come to bring peace, but a sword. These folks, they may have become believers, we don't know, but they go silent for the rest of the chapter. And we only hear from the majority. We don't get to hear from them again. So the majority, they turned again to the blind man and say, what have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened, and the man replied, he is a prophet. Can you imagine what this guy has gone through? His entire life, he has been an outcast, a burden. Remember, he was not welcome in the synagogue. If we go back to the beginning, even the disciples carried the prejudices of their time. Who sinned, this man or his parents? See, the Jews believe that any deformity, whether it's blindness or any of those diseases, were all a result of sin. People who were disabled were not allowed in the synagogue. That's not biblical, by the way. The law said diseased folks were not allowed in the synagogue. They had to wash and be inspected before returning to society. That's what it says. It says diseased people. It doesn't say folks that have disabilities. That was a health measure, right? If you're sick, stay home. Then go see the doctor, right? Wash, go see the doctor, wait two weeks, get washed again, and then come back if you're still well. We can apply this today. If you are sick, stay home until you are better and bathe regularly. But it was never meant to ostracize disabled folks. This guy, he receives his sight. He has never seen before. And understand this too. They say this later on that this miracle is unique to Jesus. No prophet before could do this. And there are a lot of miracles in the Old Testament, a lot of supernatural events throughout the Old Testament. But no one cured blindness. Only Jesus. So why didn't the Pharisees greet him with open arms? Imagine where they are. This is Herod's temple. 
There's over 40 tons of gold overlaid Lebanon cedar, cedar panels that are inside the temple. Massive white pillars. All these beautiful things. The entire floor, white marble. There's a, there's a garrison that sits above that actually looks down over the temple. Why didn't they give him a tour? This is the first time this man has ever seen in his entire life. Why didn't they go to his house at, before sun, like four o'clock in the morning, go wake him up, hey man, come on. Take him up to the top of that garrison. Let him watch the sun rise. Let him watch the sun just light up that temple, that gold gleaming. Let him see. Say, no, look, this is what you've been missing your entire life. Look at how beautiful this is. Welcome. For the first time, welcome. Instead, they drag him for an investigation. They put him on trial. And he hasn't grown up in the synagogue. Remember that he hasn't been allowed in. He doesn't know the scriptures. He has been ostracized his whole life. But clearly he has listened and paid enough attention to surmise one thing. Jesus had to be a prophet. Now, what's incredible is when we compare this to the Samaritan woman at the well, she knew the scriptures better than this guy. She's like, I'm looking for the Messiah. And Jesus says, well, you found him. And also notice, it wasn't a prerequisite for Jesus to heal him. He didn't hand him a braille copy of the New Testament and ask him to come back in six weeks and give some kind of a statement on the Gospel of John before he was healed. He just heals him. So the blind man says Jesus was a prophet. Now right there, the investigation is over. Right there, it's over. They know the truth. The man has testified wholly and honestly about what happened. The evidence is plain. Born blind, begging, spit, mud, wash, I can see. There it is. So this is where we get into the characteristic of unbelief. The Pharisees aren't satisfied. They have the whole truth right there in front of them, and they are not satisfied. And it is frustrating when we tell the truth, when the evidence is obvious, when the logic and the reasoning screams for the truth, and the veracity, especially the veracity of the Bible. When the truth about God is obvious. But this isn't an honest investigation. They aren't looking for the truth. And most unbelievers are not looking for the truth. They want justification. They want self-satisfaction. They want to be justified in their unbelief. Go to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. It talks about this exactly. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them. It's very plain. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. There is no excuse. No one's going to stand in the throne room and go, I didn't know. No one's going to stand before God and go, you're being unfair. Every single one of us, we're going to be judged fairly. When we bend the knee at the end of our lives, we're going to go, yeah, he's right. All of us will. 
For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. See, when an unbeliever is given evidence that contradicts their suppositions or that should be investigated, they are not interested in learning the truth. They're simply looking for justification for their unbelief. So instead, you get this sequence of conflict. It starts off with the intellectual, where you start off trying to have a conversation based on the facts. Instead of getting a factual or intellectual response, you get an emotional response. Then the verbal conflict escalates. Insults start to fly. And at the very end, it goes to physical if it gets that far. And we'll see at the end of the verse, they throw him out. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? They say, well, we know he is our son and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. And his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders and rightfully so who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So they summon him a second time. Give glory to God by telling the truth. We know this man is a sinner. They've already got the conclusion. They just want justification for what they already believe. The parents have already copped out. They know the consequences for speaking out for Jesus. They are rightfully scared of the authorities. When the Pharisees stick with their suppositions, they call Jesus a sinner. In the face of the truth, in the face of the evidence, they are unmoved. Now compare that with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. His mind was open. He wasn't sure what to make of Jesus, but in the face of the evidence, he had to rethink what he knew, and he was willing to rethink what he knew. The goal is to be like Nicodemus and not like these Pharisees. So now the emotions fly and they get the verbal escalation. He gets to be kind of a smart aleck at the end. I like this guy. But he says, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? I like him. But then, listen to the verbal escalation. They hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. If we flipped back a chapter, those two chapters, Jesus says, Yeah, when you stand before the throne, Moses will be your accuser. It's a little rough. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God, do, God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the man, eyes of a man born blind. And if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. That should have changed their minds right there. He does a great argument here. This is brilliant. For a man who has not spent his life in the synagogue, he puts together a three-step argument. 
God does not listen to sinners. None of the Old Testament prophets heal the blind. And could he do this if he weren't from God? Doesn't this make him greater than the Old Testament prophets? It's a beautiful three-step argument based on the truth. But to this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. It's a personal attack. You're a sinner, therefore we don't have to listen to you. It's an ad hominem attack. They've run out of facts. The facts aren't changing them. It doesn't justify what they want. So instead they go after him personally. Because you were born blind, you were steeped in sin. That's what they say. Nothing like picking on the blind kid, I guess. You were steeped in sin at birth, and how dare you lecture us? And then they threw him out. They invalidate him as a person. He has no standing, so they don't have to listen to him. And you'll see this. This happens all the time, right? Well, you're a blank, 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 so you can't comment on the topic, right? Well, you're, a, you're, you're white, so you have no idea. Well, you're a guy, so you have no idea. Well, you're middle-aged, so you have no idea. Well, you're your. You're. We invalidate the argument based on who the person is, especially when it's uncontrollable factors of a person's life, right? You're less than. It's an ad hominem attack. So it started off intellectual. There there was a conversation about the facts. The response, though, was not factual. It was emotional. The response, they just get upset about it. And then the verbal conflict starts and the insults fly. And at the very end, the physical, they throw him out. So Jesus heard that they had thrown him out because his work isn't done. Yeah, I healed the blindness. That's not the main reason why I'm here. So he finds the guy later because he wants to make sure that this guy makes it to heaven. So he says, Jesus heard that, the man, that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? That's a proper title that these Jews understood he was talking about the Messiah. So when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, understand that he is calling himself the Messiah. There's a lot of times where when we have conversations about the Bible, we go, man, you know, why does he say that over and over and over again? Son of Man, Son of Man, Son of Man. It's the most often title that Jesus uses for himself. He's giving himself a proper name that the Jews would have recognized as the Messiah. Who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. He's never seen Jesus before. This is the first time he has seen Jesus. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus is a sword. Jesus restates his divisiveness. Because he says right here, verse 39, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. The contrast is obvious. The blind man, the rejected man, the excluded man, the man who has never read. He couldn't read. Even if you handed him the scriptures, hand him the Gospel of John with the Psalms and the, you know, the stuff, when we have in those little tracks at the back, hand it to him. He can't read. This man is the man that Jesus chooses. Never in his life has he read anything, not even a street sign, let alone the scriptures. That man has his eyes opened. That man can physically see and spiritually see. And the Pharisees, the guys who were supposed to be the ones who could see everything, 
who were standing there, they heard this and they asked, what, are we blind too? And then Jesus says, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. If you were ignorant, you wouldn't be responsible, but you're not ignorant. You claim all the time that you can see. So your guilt remains. Notice the principle. Those who take up the name of God are responsible for how they carry it. If it's not in the Ten Commandments, it should be. Again, it is not a burden, but we must be serious in our obedience. It is not to be taken lightly or flippantly or for our own purposes. Like I said a couple of chapters ago, Jesus said that Moses himself would testify against them at the throne room of God. So we will encounter unbelief. We will encounter people who are willful in their rebellion, willful in their rejection of God. Now, the rejection is not grounds for us to stop proclaiming the gospel. In many ways, like the law, when we proclaim the truth of the gospel in a kind and loving way, the willful rejectors become responsible. So we'll close with Romans 8, and then we'll have communion. So it's Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. It says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither the height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let's pray and let's do communion. Father God, thank you. Thank you for John. Thank you for time in your word. We're going to be obedient. We're going to remember you with communion here in just a moment. Father, we just lift this time up to you, that we could offer up some worship, that we could, in our obedience, lift up a fragrance that is pleasing to you. We take this time to lift up our sins to you, lift up the times where we miss the mark, either intentionally or unintentionally, that we, that you would wash us again, that you would make us clean, 